You can open your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. And um, today we're going to, well, let me say, today we're going to ask the question, am I saved? Am I saved? Now, of the questions you can ask, I think that's probably the most and very foundational question you should ask, at least if you call yourself a Christian is, am I saved? Now, by show of hands, who of you know, who of you know Donald Trump? <laughs> All right, so most people know Donald Trump. Now, if you say you know Donald Trump, then um, what, do you th- what is his favorite thing to do his pastime, in his pastime? Is it? Okay, cool, cool. And um, his favorite color? Blue? Oh, okay. <laughs> you see, knowing Donald Trump and knowing of Donald Trump are two different things, right? It would be, a, it would be if, if, if I asked you, who is known of Donald Trump? That would mean something more, right? It means he knows you, and you know him, and you sort of, understand something about each other, right? There's a, there's a relationship. Now, with that in mind, who knows Jesus, right? Do you, do you see where I'm going? Like, knowing Jesus and him knowing you are two different things, right? We're quick to say, I know Jesus. We're quick to say, I know Donald Trump. We're quick to say, I know whoever, but does that truly mean that you are known of that person? Does that mean there is a relationship between the two of you? In Matthew chapter 7, um, in verse 21, we read, Matthew seven twenty-one. it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done wondrous work, wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, you have to place yourself, at least theoretically, in that position, at some point in your life, I want to say, after your conversion. You need to say, is there a chance that he will say to me, depart from me, I never knew you? That's a, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a a thing of a lack of faith to ask a question like that. You heard it this morning, 2 Corinthians we read about in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. It's, it's, it's something we should do. If we can say, Lord, Lord, and do these things in God's name, and someone like that can stand at the judgment seat and God says, depart from me, I never knew you, 
at least we need to say, whoa, I have to think about this twice. I need to make sure of what I stake my eternal salvation on. I need to ask this question. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And then it says, And I know them. And then it says, And they follow me. See, if you are known of Jesus, there's that relationship, then what's the next thing that follows is that you follow him. All right? So we follow in the footsteps of Christ. We see the example that he has given us, and we try and emulate that as best we can. That is the natural progression of being known of Jesus. Now, I may, I want to say, I'll probably say some things today that will at least catch you off guard, make you feel uncomfortable. The reason I know that is because as I was writing them, it made me feel that way. <laughs> All right. So, but I'm not, I will, I will with, my, with everything inside of me, stay as close to Scripture as I can. And I also want to say the reason we are looking at this question, and the reason I'm addressing this question to people who say they are saved, is because I think a lot of people who say they are saved aren't saved. And the reason I do that is because the passage just before this, the few verses just before this, speaks about the narrow gate and the wide gate and the narrow path and the wide path, and it says few there are that enter into it. So because I believe Scripture, I have to say, well, we need to take this seriously. And if by some reason you are assured of a salvation which is not true, I want to be sure to, in love, make you aware of that. Because what a shame would it be if you go through the whole of your life thinking that you are saved, thinking that you are going to heaven and you were in church and no one ever challenged you on that profession. And I stand there at the judgment seat of Christ and I see some of you depart into everlasting fire and I said nothing about it. So we need to look at this today and I want you to know it is coming not because of any <laughs> position or superiority. I, I don't see myself as any of that. It's coming from a point of this is true and if this is true we need to hear it. Alright? So and I want to say, what's worse, right? It's worse to think that you are... Or, thinking you are saved and not being saved. That's definitely a worse thing to be in. And then potentially saying, I might not be saved, let me check myself. It's definitely worse to go through life thinking. You know, as, as people who are not saved would say, I can eat you know. We're okay. Me and the old man upstairs, we're okay. Because someone who's saved doesn't speak like that about God. All right. So, am I saved? Well, let's pray about it. Lord, we ask that you please help us today. Um, Lord, thank you that you are so faithful, that you're so good, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that 
you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you that, that there is even a subject of salvation to speak about. Thank you that you made that possible for us, Lord. I ask that you please guide us through your word this morning. It is, we want to know how you feel about this, Lord. We want to know what you deem important, Lord. We want to hear your heart, and Lord, we want to grow closer to you because of it. Please come speak to us, Lord. Please come guide us, and Lord, I pray that if anyone is offended by what's being said today, it would be at your word and not at me, Lord. So please take me out of the picture in that sense, Lord, and let your word have the preeminence, and may you receive all the glory, Father. We thank you so much, Lord, that we can be here. Please speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A.W. Tozer said, A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Christ without forsaking the world. At least something to get you thinking. The first thing I want to speak about this morning, I have, I have three points. They are not as defined as I would like them to be. <laughs> but um, the first point I want to make is I want to dispel some myths. Dispel some myths. You see, we, we live in a, a Christian culture. We live in an environment in which um, I think Christianity has become so common, it's become popular. It's, you know, you have these mega churches coming up and you have um, every prophet and priest, you know, having his own thing that he's doing. And it's almost like it's been commercialized to a large extent. And so this commercialization of Christianity to make it popular to the masses obviously means that certain things need to be pushed aside because that's offensive and that's a little bit, you know, people don't like hearing that and all of that. And so what's happened is we're left with a Christianity that's empty. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, people say, I just, I just like to follow the, you know, Jesus. I just like to listen to what Jesus, the, you know, gentle Jesus. And then I think to myself, have you read the Gospels? <laughs> no one spoke more about hell than Jesus, for example. It's, it's, we have this, this, this honestly commercialized idea of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved. So one of the myths that I want to speak about is this. Well, let, me, let me not say speak about it. I'm just going to mention a few things. And that is that, for example, it doesn't make you a Christian because you go to church. That's not what makes you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian because you came to the altar at one point in your life. That doesn't make you a Christian. Even the... Th- the term, accept Jesus into your heart, is not found in the Bible, right? Now, am I saying that coming to the altar, accepting Jesus, being in church is somehow wrong? Of course not. But if you're staking your salvation on the fact that you came to the altar 10 years ago and you prayed a prayer that someone led you in that you're saved, I would say, you need to think twice. I'm not saying it couldn't have been the point where you got saved. It could have. But it's more than that. All right? And so having gone through catechism, having participated in certain of the sacraments of the church, like baptism and all of that, um, having prayed a sinner's prayer, none of that 
saves you yes, as such. It's not a, it's, faith is not this thing where we say, you know what, I hope, I hope for the best. I hope that one day God will accept me. That is not faith. That is blind hope, hopefulness, if I can put it that way. Faith in Jesus Christ, believing in Christ, has got a certain depth to it, and we'll look at that today. But this idea of, I just prayed a prayer and all of that. And it, honestly, guys, I believe that I got saved when I prayed a prayer. <laughs> but that was not just, that was not it. It was when I realized, really understood the direction of my life, the eternal judgment that was awaiting me because of my reckless behavior, because of the fact that I rejected Christ, because of all of that, when that sunk in and I realized what Jesus did, that is the moment I got saved. Whether that was accompanied with a prayer, almost I want to say secondary. You're right? And so I just want to get those myths out of the way. The first thing that, or when, when it comes to Christianity, someone who is saved is someone who has responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Something inside of you tells you that I'm not right with God. And that's called the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I send him into the world, right, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. That's why the Holy Spirit is there. So if you feel in your heart that there's sin in your life, that God is working something in your heart, that this is wrong. That's sin, right? Of righteousness, in other words, that God is so pure and righteous and holy that there is no way that holiness can pervert itself with sin. And because of righteousness, His righteousness, because of our sin, there is therefore judgment. And that whole working is done through the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. And then also, secondary, to be a Christian, you need to have heard and understood the gospel. I can't tell you, I don't know why I do this to myself, but sometimes I click on people like Stephen Furtick or Joel Osteen, who laughed, <laughs> and I watch a video of theirs, and you know what? They offer, they say, will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior today? You know what preceded that? Nothing about the gospel. What are they supposed to accept? Why are they supposed to accept? Why Jesus? Why not Muhammad? Why? It's just, accept Jesus into your heart. Raise your hand. Come to the front. Where's the gospel? The gospel, all right? So the gospel needs to be heard and understood. There has to be conviction of the Holy Spirit. And then you need to repent. Now, repentance, I'm not talking about you have to have stopped all your sin in order for you to come to Christ. No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's in our sin that Christ died for us, okay? So it's not a matter of you have to have turned from your sin, but what needs to happen when we speak about repentance, it means about a change in your mind. We're talking about the way I viewed my sin, I no longer want to view it that way. I don't want to see my sin as something that, that it's pleasurable. I don't want to see it as something that excites me. I, I want to see it as something that, that pulls me down. Something that bears fruit for a little while and makes me excited and then just fizzles away. And every time I f I'm lower than I was before. I want to hate that sin. 
And so repentance is not, I have stopped sinning. Repentance is, I no longer see sin the way I used to see it. And I want to see God the way He is to be seen, not the way I saw Him, the way I treated Him. That's repentance. It's that change in your mind. And then, if you've, the Holy Spirit convicts you, you've heard the gospel, and you repent. And you place then your full trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how it progresses. And then once you've done that, you seek to have Christ now leading your life. You seek to have Christ, His Word, to say, Lord, show me how I should walk. Show me what I should put out of my life. Show me what I need to include in my life. And so you start laying off and you start putting on. He who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, they have all become new. It needs to transform you. It's not just something that... <laughs> it's, I, would use the, I would use the illustration of a vaccine, but it, doesn't, it no longer really holds true. But I would say it's not like a shot you got, a polio shot you got back in the past, and then you're fine. You can't get polio anymore. But these <laughs> COVID vaccines, like, it's not a good illustration, but it's not like a legit shot you got, and it's, it's fine. All right? It's something that God works in you. It's active. It's changing you. And these things that I mentioned now, responding to the Holy, Holy Spirit and the working of the gospel in your heart, all of that, these are not, they, they can be somewhat separate events, but this is something that happens usually together. Spirit working in you. You hear the gospel, you respond to it. Christ lives in your heart and you start changing. It's something that, that, that starts at that moment. So I'm not saying salvation is a process. Salvation is instantaneous, but it obviously has an um, outworking through the rest of your life. So I just wanted to dispel those myths, but the main thing that I want to do is I want us to examine, examine our hearts. I'm not going to make you page to it, but um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we read that verse about examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. And I think that is, what, that is what this text that we're looking at in Matthew 7 forces us to do. It's because not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you there is the word saith or says. An empty confession to just say, I believe in Jesus Christ. Or, Jesus is Lord. That can mean a lot. Personally, that can mean a lot. But it can also mean not much. <laughs> it can just be something that, yeah, well, I grew up in church. I know yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and what does that mean to you? You know, Paul Washer illustrated, yeah, he speaks about this person who's late for an appointment. And then he, gives, he says, the reason I'm late for this appointment because I got a flat tire and I parked off the side of the road and as I was loosening the wheel nuts, the wheel nut bounced into the road. And so I had to get into the road to get the wheel nut and as I looked up, a semi-truck hit me at 100 miles per hour, and that's the reason I'm late for this appointment. <laughs> you're going to, exactly, this is how you're going to react, right? Now, that person 
is a liar. He's fabricating that story. No one is late for an appointment because they were hit by a semi-truck and then just got back in their car and just drove off. If something as big as a semi-truck hits you, it has to change your life. Now, what's bigger, a semi-truck or God? If God, if, you have, if, if God reaches in and touches your heart and changes you, we need to be able to see it. Now, how much, how quickly? I think that is, that's how you and God, something that God works in your heart. Depends on how much you yield to the working of the Spirit, all of that. But change has to be. There has to be change. So this empty profession of saying Lord, Lord, that doesn't save you. He says Lord, so it's not about words as much as it is about the heart behind the words. I can say, my Lord, I love you. And that could mean a lot. But if it's just how, I'm learned, how I've been learned, taught to pray, <laughs> how I've been learned, wow, I haven't been learned to speak English. <laughs> How I've been taught to pray, right? In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, it says, And why call ye me Lord? This is Jesus speaking. He says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I can't call someone my Lord or my Master or whatever, and then not listen to anything or and act anything that he's telling me to do. Then, per definition, he's not my Lord. And so Jesus says, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? So you see, it's a lot to do with the, how can I say, the trueness of your profession is seen in your willingness to act upon it. There has to be something that flows from it. Have a look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. So in Matthew chapter 7 we read that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But it says, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Well, let's have a look here. In James chapter 1 and verse 22 it says, but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You deceive yourself if you think, I read the word of God, and that's what makes me a Christian. A doer. If you just read it, you deceive yourself. You think that I have now, I have now pleased God by reading my Bible. If reading your Bible does not change anything in the way you live, you have not pleased God. If reading the Bible does change, well then, that's a double whammy, then you've read your Bible and you've changed. <laughs> and that's what God wants from you, right? All right, have a look at James chapter two. James chapter two, verse 18, it says, yeah, a man say, there's that word say again, eh? Say, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. How do you show someone your faith 
without works. And I think that's what James is trying to do. Okay, is that the approach you want to take? Okay, show me your faith without works. I'll rather show you my faith by my works. You can't, you can't show faith without works. The way you show faith is by actually being willing to take a step in whatever you have faith in. That's how you show faith. I believe this parachute will open and help me to come safely to the floor. Therefore, I will pull the string. If you do not have faith, you will most likely not even be on the plane. <laughs> you need to have... Faith leads to action. Think about the fact when you walked in here this morning, you saw these red chairs and you were like, I'm going to sit there. And you walked there and you sat on that chair. You did not even think twice whether that chair would hold your weight. You had faith that the chair would hold your weight, so you were willing to sit down in the chair. You had faith that the parachute would deploy and catch you, so you were willing to get on the plane. You had faith that your car would start when you get in and turn the key. That is why you will get in the car and turn the key. You see, if you have faith in something, you will take action. If you do not believe that the chair will hold your weight, you will not go and sit down on it. You'll be a random guy standing somewhere in the hall this morning. Right? Faith leads to action. And that's what James is saying. He is not saying that you are saved by your works, but he's saying that true saving faith leads to works. You can have a look at it. James chapter 2. Um, verse 22 says, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. It was completed. It was fulfilled. So what the point is that if you have true saving faith, it will change something. It will change the way you make decisions. It will change the things that you do and don't do. So doing we need to examine ourselves. Do we, see, do we see something that we are doing, something changing in our lives? Now, in Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus said, um, spoke about doing, he said, doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What is the will of God? For example, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Repentance. There's that word, repentance. Change in mind. The way you think about sin. Everyone needs to come to that point. Keep your place here. Just have a look at John quickly. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6 verse 40 says, John 6 verse 40 says, And this is the will of of him that sent me. Okay? This is the will of God, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus, or God's will, is that you believe and that you have everlasting life. That is God's will. Okay? And so praise God for that, that that is his will. If it was not his will, God would not have sent his Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is God's will. So, you need to do 
that will. In other words, there is some responsibility on your part as to how you respond to the fact that God wants you to believe. Now, I'm going to get into what it is exactly that you must believe, because you can't believe in something that you don't know exists or what it is, but you need to believe in something. So let's go on in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 says, verse 22, And many will say, there's that word say again, empty confession, many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? When I read that, I think about what I'm doing right now. (laughs) And it's a bit of a, makes you think twice. Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? See, in verse 21, we saw that it's not about simply a confession. It's not those who just say, Lord, Lord. Now in verse 22, we see it's not about those who do deeds of service. So you can have a confession, and you can be active in a local ministry. And verse 23 will still hold true. These people placed all of the emphasis on their deeds of service. They staked the fact that one day when they get to God, that judgment seat, God will say, well done, because they prophesied in his name, because they cast out devils, and because they did wonderful works, and because they said, Lord, Lord. That's what they staked their salvation on. And that is a rude awakening to get there one day and not know that this is not what saves you. Your works cannot save you. You see, many people start doing things without truly knowing God. Knowing God is so much more important than just getting involved in serving. Please do serve. You have to serve God. But do it because God has saved you. Do it because you have a hunger to see other people reached. Do it because you want to form part of that local ministry and grow that church for Christ's sake. That is why you do it. Not because you're hoping that you're twisting God's arm slowly and slowly, day by day, as you do more for Him. You can't twist God's arm. So, if it's not confession, if it's not deeds of service, then what is it about? What is it about? Sorry, I should have kept you in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. What is it about? You see, we as people have this innate desire to say, what can I do to fix myself before God? Jesus, tell me what thing I must do so that I can go to heaven. We want to to constantly earn our way. And people actually ask Jesus this question. In John chapter 6, verse 28, it says, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's kind of like a sneaky way of answering the question. It's like, what must I do? You can't do anything. What you must do is you must believe. (laughs) Belief, do, yeah. So Jesus says you have to believe. You have to have faith. You have to trust. So if that is what, why am I emphasizing Why am I talking about our works? Why am I talking about faith leading to works if it's all about belief? Well, 
Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter six, oh, in Matthew chapter seven, verse 20, the verse we didn't deal with yet, says, wherefore by their fruit you will know them. So Jesus emphasized it, right? Well, not just Jesus, throughout the New Testament. But the reason I think we, we, we struggle with this concept of I have to believe and believing is what saves him, but there is still works. The reason we struggle with this is because we misunderstand what true faith really means. What true belief, what true trust really means. It's not just this, I've heard the story of Jesus and I really, really think that there is a hell and so I need to be saved. It's, it's, not, just a, it's not just something you think about. It's not just a set of rules or have you been baptized? Have you, have you gone through discipleship? Have you, have you, no, it's not that. It's has God reached into your heart and have you truly believed what Jesus did for you? Have you, has that sunk in to your heart? And that's part of, this, it's part of I think, this commercialized Christianity. It's just, you're on a camp, it's emotion, everyone's excited, and you make a commitment to God. Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks pass, and it just slowly starts fizzling. Belief, true faith, leads to works. You cannot separate faith and works just because... So we, we, we understand the concept of the seat, the car, the parachute. We understand, it makes sense. Why do we want to separate it as soon as it comes to Christianity? You don't separate it anywhere else in life. Now you come to the scripture and you say, ah, believe, I've done that, I'm good. And I pray that you are fine, that you have believed. But true, saving faith, you cannot get away from it in scripture. I, I didn't put on all the references, but there's so much. In Ephesians chapter two, it speaks about you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself, that is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then it says, we are created, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Right? And there are so many references speaking that those who are truly saved leads to good works. And that flow needs to go through. The whole Hebrews 11 is written about heroes of the faith. Speaking about Abraham, speaking about Moses, speaking about all these heroes of the faith, and it goes through this whole list. You know, every time, in, in Hebrews 11 verse 6, it speaks about, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Okay? Then it goes on to the examples. And the examples, he says, Abraham, he believed, and then he did. Moses, he believed, and then he did. Noah, he believed, and then he did. Do you see how the picture is, if you are saved, if you have faith, it has to translate to works. I almost want to say, there's, by their fruits you will know them. If there is no fruit, you are on good grounds not to make any claim to say you are not saved. 
but you can say, I am on biblical grounds to say, we should question. Myself, if I don't see works, if I don't see fruit in my life, was that true saving faith? We need to examine ourselves. Well, some people object to this, to this idea that the chair, the car, the parachute, all of that, the reason I have faith in that is because I can actually see and I have evidence that that chair will hold me. I've sat on that chair before. I've seen other people sit on that chair. And then I ask myself, that's not really any different, right? I've seen other people's lives changed like this by the gospel. I've seen people who loved their sin say, I hate it. It destroys me. It hurts God. I don't want anything to do with it. If you read history, if you look at people's lives who have been saved, who have changed, who have offered up everything for it, we have examples. So, what makes that any different? What about evidence? Well, of all the historical documents in the world, there is no other historical document that's as accurately documented than Scripture. Nothing. Not, nothing comes close. If you're willing to believe anything else in history is true, then you have to believe the Bible is true. Otherwise, you need to start rejecting other things because all other things are less supported than Scripture. And I'm not talking about Scripture just being supported by itself. I'm talking about historically proven outside of Scripture. So there's evidence. There's experiences. So, you cannot separate faith and works. Works, and I'll say it again because I know someone will misunderstand me. I'm not saying works save you. You cannot do enough good to undo the wrong that you have done. You cannot. It's not a balance. It's not a, yes, I did, I did you know, that evil thing and I did that evil thing and I hurt that person and I what, 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 but I also helped that old lady. Yes, I'm th thank you for helping the old lady, but you're on trial for what you did wrong. And so we have to get that in our minds. We're on trial for our sin not for what we do right. Praise be to God, though, if you've been saved, you're in Christ, you're a new creature, all things have been made new, then the things that you do good are fruit and that they lay up treasures in heaven and that there's a future hope and that there's ruling and reigning with Christ and all of that. That is true. That is true. But we cannot separate faith and works in a Christian's life. Verse 23, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. It says, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, it's about being known. It's about being known. So the question is, is there... A relationship and I can't answer that question for any of you but what I can do is show you that there are some telling signs at least that you can use to examine yourself and if you don't want to hear it at least listen to it <laughs> I want to say because there are other people outside there 
who need to hear it. So, firstly, the one of the telling signs is the one that we see in the verse, and that is that having a relationship with God must affect the way you treat iniquity. In verse 23, it says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So we have to see that there's a relationship between working iniquity. Now, iniquity is essentially lawlessness. Lawlessness. So iniquity and knowing God are not compatible. Otherwise, this person would not be sent away. So iniquity, in other words, lawlessness, and relationship is not compatible. Now, when you're a new creature in Christ, you have a new nature. Your new nature does not love the sin that it used to love. It hates the sin that it used to love. In other words, your attitude to sin changes. Not, not the fact that you do sin. Paul says, the thing that I should do, I do not. Right? And, I, and he says, I hate it. I don't want that. I don't, he says, I want to do this, but I find myself being pulled this way. In other words, it's something that he does not want to do. He wants to do that. So, your attitude has changed. It doesn't mean you don't fall. It doesn't mean you don't commit sin um, from time to time or whatever, but your desire is to say, I want to be done with this. And so when you do commit sin, as it says in John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our faults, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that's where that fellowship comes in. That's where a communion with God, the relationship comes in. In Hebrews chapter 12, it speaks about being chastised and God chastising those children whom he loves. And so what happens in our life is all of a sudden, we, when we commit sin, it bothers us. And God says, I don't want you to do this. I want you to be in fellowship with me. I want you to serve you. That's why he created Adam and Eve in perfect perfection in the garden. Fellowship. And that was destroyed by sin. And now we have the opportunity through Christ to be, have a restored relationship with him. And so when we sin, God says, no, my child, I don't want you to do that. That's why I discipline my children. It's because I don't want them to fall into sin and to live and follow sinful ways and think like the world. I want to show them the way of righteousness. And that's what God wants to do. Is he keeps wanting to point us that way. And if you see God chastising you, if you see God working in your heart, that's one way of knowing at least there is good, good reason for you to think that you may be saved. But if you have a, a willy-nilly reaction towards sin, you're like, oh, oh well, just another one. Imagine if you could put yourself at that cross Jesus lying there on the floor like this and you have the nail and the hammer in your hand and you're like, sin, not sin. Sin, not sin. And you hit that out. That's what you're doing, essentially. It's our sins that nailed him to the cross. He had no sin of his own. So it's our sin. We have to change our attitude towards sin. It, it has to happen. A new creature. The second thing I want to say is, in terms of a sign that there is a relationship, um, is also in our context, and that was in, 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 in verse 20 of chapter 7, where it speaks about, wherefore by their fruits you will know them. 
Now, fruit is different to deeds of service. It's exactly deeds of service in verse 22 that they're actually still being damned for. It's this empty deeds of service. Works are different to that. If, or fruit is different to that. You may think of fruit as you read about it in Galatians chapter 5. Fruits of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We have um, Paul speaking about the fruits of the Spirit, and this is when the Spirit now indwells in you. In other words, you are saved. This is what he starts working in your heart because we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so then what we read in verse um, 22 of chapter 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Are you Christ's? Have you crucified then the flesh and the affections of the lusts? Do you see when you look at the fruit that we are supposed to bear, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Do you see that in your life? Do you see it growing? I'm not saying, are you the, are you the perfection? Are you the picture of peace? Are you the picture of joy? But is it growing in your heart? Do you want to love better? Do you want to live more in the peace of God? Do you want to be gentle, meekness? Is that, is that your desire? Do you see it changing in your life? I think that's another telling sign of, well, whether you truly have that relationship. And I would encourage you to read through that list, pray through it, and ask yourself, is this in my life? And then lastly, the one last thing I want to point out about um, the sign, a sign of a true relationship is the one we've sort of already addressed, and that's the one of faith or the one of belief. Um, We've spoken about the nature and the content of this faith. And this is the starting point. You cannot, you cannot have the fruits of the Spirit being developed in your life and conforming you to the image of Christ if you've never been in Christ. All right? So this belief is the starting point. And then it starts working in your life. The fruits of the Spirit start working in your heart and you start changing and you start becoming more like Jesus. So this is what you want, is that true saving faith. So a biblically defined, I want to say, statement of faith is a great evidence of a true relationship. And so, and so when, we, when I look at someone and I, I ask myself, is this person saved? Why do I ask that question? It's because I want to say, I'm saved and you're not. No. It's because if, if you're not saved, I want to speak to you about the gospel. So Judging righteous judgment, being a discerner between truth and untruth, I need to be able to say, well, how do I know if someone is saved? One thing is, what is their statement of faith? What is their confession? So once again, I'm not downplaying confession, but it's one of what forms a Christian. What is your confession? Do you know what you believe? If, if I ask you, please come and explain what the gospel is. How can you be saved by the gospel if you don't know the gospel? To me, that doesn't make sense. 
maybe I'm missing something, but if you cannot explain the gospel, how can you be saved by it? Um, so that's one thing. And, and, and when I say explain the gospel, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about going into the nth degree of theological terminology and speaking about soteriology and the doctrine of sanctification. None, um, no. The gospel. A few words. Do you understand the gospel? Secondly, do I see fruit in your life? By the fruit you will know them. Do I have a checklist of how many fruit? How quickly the fruit came about after the seed was... No. Is there change? Is there change? Is there fruit? Is this tree bearing good fruit? And so, I am, I am by no means <laughs> the... I should probably say what my third point is. Assurance. I am by no means the assurance police. And I'm not going to go around telling you that you are saved or not saved. I don't see that being, at least being, telling people you are saved being done in Scripture. I, if any of you know of an example, please come and tell me. But I don't know of an example where we go around telling people you are now saved. I think, if anything, it's probably dangerous. Because you don't know what's happening in that person's heart. You don't know if they're making a lifetime commitment to Christ. And now you tell that person they're saved and that person lives for 20 years of their life looks back, yes, on that day, I was saved. Could it have been that day? Yes and amen. But who are you, especially if it's a false conversion, to emphasize it, to encourage it? Aren't you then sort of keeping that person safely in their state of not being saved? I do not want to be that person. So I would encourage you also not to do the same. However, based on Scripture, we can draw conclusions. We can judge righteous judgment. And we should be able to say, from what I see, I think this person needs the gospel. And you know what? It's always a safer conclusion to draw. <laughs> because if you come and speak to me about the gospel, and I'm truly saved by the gospel, I'm not going to be offended that you're speaking to me about the gospel. And if you're not saved... Well, that's the only way you're going to be saved. So either way, whether you're speaking to a saved or a lost person, it's a good thing to speak about the gospel. But at least if you have some framework, you can say, I don't see fruit. Well, that confession is the Sunday school one of Jesus died on the cross. I don't think that's real. At least you can question it. At least you can say, I think we need to speak about this. So where do we find assurance? It's not in an empty confession. It's not in how much we served Christ. It's not in the good that we have done, which outweighs the bad. It's not our culture. It's not having a date written in the back of your Bible. It's none of that. Because if you trust any of those things as the basis of your salvation, the chances are so big that you are not saved. Because... Those people in Matthew chapter 7 who prophesied in God's name and cast out devils and did all these wonderful works and called Lord, Lord and prayed to God, Jesus never knew them. So I think it would be very superstitious to say 
that through what I've done, through what I've not done, through this or that, I am saved. It's, we should stop that superstition and we should say, what does the Bible say? This is the gospel. Gospel, the gospel, the gospel. That is through which we are saved. It is believed, true, wholehearted trust in this, I'm going to use a word, substitutionary work of Jesus. Substitutionary work. In other words, I am here in sin. God's just judgment is my due because I've sinned. Christ, who knew no sin, no sin was in him, is here. He should not die for sin. He has no sin of his own. So what is substitutionary atonement? It's me being put here and Jesus being put here. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. And he was crushed for my iniquity. And now I am the righteousness of Christ in God, the righteousness of God in Christ because of Jesus. And so when you read about Jesus having to go down and preach to the spirits in prison and that his soul was not left in hell and all of that, it's because Jesus took that payment that you were supposed to take. And so it's belief in that substitutionary work and not, oh yeah, that, yeah, that sounds, like a, sounds like a good story. I like that. It's belief. It's trust. It's, it's evidenced by Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus, as Paul said, did not raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. If someone, <laughs> just imagine, if someone dies, like, I don't, I, I don't want to make it gruesome, but like, you know he's dead, like right now, here, declared dead, and then stands up and starts telling you things. I think you should... <laughs> I think you should listen. He's probably got something you don't have, right? And so if, if Christ, and that's what I'm saying, if, if you doubt the resurrection, well, you doubt salvation, but if you doubt the resurrection, go look at what evidence there is for it. Secular, non-secular. But if Jesus rose from the dead, there is. Um, we need to take what he said seriously. So, how do we find assurance of salvation? We find assurance of salvation in the gospel. We find assurance of salvation in the gospel. Once you understand the gospel, you realize your need for Jesus and place your faith in him. You can be saved. Then as time goes on, you examine yourself and the Bible commands to see whether you are being conformed to the image of Christ, whether your desires have changed, whether you are bearing fruit that is meat, that is appropriate for repentance, and is the Spirit guiding you into truth and into righteousness? Do you see that happening in your life? You want to see that happening in your life because then it's, it's evidence of true saving faith. Evidence in your life stemming from true saving faith, you can know that you are saved. And I briefly want to just say in closing that when I, I grew up in church, so... I don't have one of those spectacular testimonies of, you know, drug addiction or whatever like that. But in a sense, I almost want to say sometimes it's harder for people to be saved who are so used to hearing Jesus, 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 Jesus. And so 
I grew up in, in church. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 13. And that, that's when I started sinning. <laughs> because that's when I entered my teenage years. And I look back at that and I say, I may have given my heart to Jesus, but that was an empty confession of faith. I got saved when I realized what my life was heading towards. You know what, one of the things that I struggled with when I just got saved is assurance. And it dawned on me, why am I not assured of my salvation? Well, first of all, I couldn't explain the gospel as I should. And so I started studying, what is the gospel? And the more I understood that, it started helping me to see, oh, okay, so this is how that works. Because if I read the gospel and it says, Jesus died for this, and I say, why did Jesus have to die? If you, if you read and you're like, huh? This doesn't make sense. You need to in, in, investigate those things. You need to try and understand why did Jesus have to die? Why is it so serious? Why hell? Why eternal punishment? Like, ask those questions, but find the answers. And so as long as I, as long as I read the Bible and I saw this and I saw my life, and I thought, yeah, my life is not lining up with this. I really struggled with assurance of salvation. But the more I said, what does God say? How do I change? How does my desire start lining up with what God wants? Then assurance is, it's actually such a simple concept. People who struggle with assurance have reason to struggle with assurance. I'm not saying are, are not saved, but have reason to struggle with assurance because there's something that's lacking. Either they don't understand the gospel, either they don't read scripture, either they read scripture and they see, I am far off. And so as long as that's there, there will be struggles. But as soon as your heart starts saying, I want to be more like Jesus, change me, God, then assurance of salvation is, is really, it's a simple concept but it's because it's the truth that God has worked in my heart and now my life wants to change and I want to line up with what God wants. So if you're not saved this morning, I do, I do really pray and I ask that you would please come and see me, please come and see anyone who you feel comfortable with who can explain the gospel to you. Um, I really think that am I saved is is the most important question you can ask. And even if you're struggling with assurance or whatever it is, ask questions. If you have questions about, I don't want to say silly things, but if you have questions about stuff that just bugs you, like why only eight people on the ark? How do two people, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> like ask questions. If you're just building up questions, you're just sowing doubt in your heart. Ask questions, find answers. But the most important question, am I saved? If you die on your way home today, God forbid it doesn't, but if you do, where are you opening your eyes? Lord, Lord, did I not just go to church? <laughs> right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this <clears throat> time. Lord, this is, this is a lot to chew on, Father. Um, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Lord, for those who are saved, oh Lord, restore to us the joy of your salvation. 
show us the anew, Lord, how great a gift that is. The depth of it, the wonder of it. And Lord, help us to to speak to others about it, Lord. Lord, change our hearts. I, I want to be first to say, Lord, please change my heart. I want to be more like you, Lord. And I pray that that would be every Christian's desire here this morning. Lord, I also want to pray for those who call themselves Christian. <clears throat> Lord, please, please work in their hearts as well. Through your Spirit, Lord, convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let them examine themselves, Lord. It's the most important thing we can do. Not, was I saved? Am I saved? And Lord, for those who know they're lost, Lord, please draw them. Draw them closer to your heart. Quicken them, Lord. May they have the boldness to ask questions so they can come to you, Lord. I thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you that you, that you don't want us to, to wander endlessly, Lord, but that you want to give us assurance. Thank you, Lord, that you encourage us to examine our hearts so that we can grow closer to you, Lord, and that we can live a fulfilling life that pleases you and one day step from this life into the next in constant fellowship with you, not with shame. But please help us. We can't do this without you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.